0: Father, we would ask for your blessing on your word. It is so rich in wisdom and knowledge, and the world rejects it so readily. Father, for us, it is life, and we would ask that you would renew us this morning. It teaches us about who you are, the state we are in, your grace and goodness and mercy towards us, and help us to be carriers of all of those things those who need a hand up whether spiritually physically however they need to be encouraged may you do it this morning through your word in jesus name amen now last time we were together we were talking about how the gospel of matthew is set up how there's a family biography a forerunner john the baptist he was there chapter three formula for the citizens of the kingdom that was a sermon on the mount the foundation of jesus's word established through the miracles that he wrought amongst the people and the fruit of true discipleship how we how we get called we are separated we are sent we are sustained by god there's suffering which will ensue people will keep us under suspicion especially those in authority but we're not to shrink back and we're to sacrifice everything in order to accomplish what the lord wants to do in us And then there are going to be the foes of Christ and the kingdom of God. And that's what we're going through right now, these foes. And the foes, we began with John the Baptist last time we were together. His biggest foe, the thing that could have tripped him up the most, was doubt. Now, faith is not the opposite of doubt. Doubt is part of faith because that spurs us on to check out what's happening is this true is this not true is the word of god accurate has it been translated and transmitted to us accurately and so we have these doubts and we need to establish the truth in the midst of these doubts so it assists us in our faith but it can be a foe it can ruin our faith It can cause us to be shipwrecked so with doubt in these next two chapters we have the doubt we have disdain we have disbelief dissatisfaction and denunciation this is where the ministry of Jesus Christ takes a nosedive. And remember I told you two weeks ago when I was with you that it, it ends up where everybody abandons Jesus, including his apostles, the 12 that were closest to him. They abandoned him in the garden. They were the last ones, but everybody else went away. And they did this because the leaders of the Jews, they kept on coming at Jesus. They were not, or Jesus was not doing what they thought he should do like. Where's your authority coming from? Why do you think you can do this? You weren't raised up in us, the the priesthood that's here, and you're just out there on your own. Who do you think you are? And he would heal people on the Sabbath, and that would just make them apoplectic. They would start pulling out their hair, like, "What are you doing? You're not supposed to work on the Sabbath." So he went against the establishment. And John the Baptist, he also called these leaders, these Pharisees, you brood of vipers who warned you to flee the wrath to come. And so they were, Jesus and John the Baptist were going up, sticking their fingers in the eyes of these guys, and it was irritating them, and they just got fed up. And because of that, they started to spread dissension and discord and make accusations against Jesus because they didn't like him because he didn't fit the mold that they wanted. And of course, they had adulterated the Old Testament and conformed it into what they thought was right. And that would be the way that they thought they should live. And if everybody followed it, everything would be fine. But in, in fact, it was a yoke. They put additional requirements upon the people that made life under God very onerous, very difficult. And that, that yoke that would be on their neck would be pushing down. And by the way, a yoke... It's not something that's in the egg. A yoke is something that you put between two cattle, whether it's an oxen or whether it's two horses or two burros, beasts of burden. And you put this yoke between the two of them and that yoke allows them to pull a blade through the soil. And when they pull the blade through the soil like that, it allows the soil to be turned over. And if you put an ox with a mule, you'll You'll not be able to get those straight lines going in the furrows, and so this yoke we have a yoke on us. our yoke is to tow the line being a disciple. Now is that yoke burdensome, or is it light? And Jesus will make the reference here that the yoke that the Pharisees, the leaders of the Jews, the priests put on the people was very burdensome, but the yoke that Jesus had was light. If we follow Jesus the way we're supposed to, his yoke is easy and his burden is light. But we all have a yoke of some kind. We are under the yoke of the government, for example. <clears throat> and even more so. Now I, okay, I'm, I'm going to jump ahead a little bit. I'm going to tell you about this. Who has gone to a restaurant since the first of the year? One? One? Okay, maybe about a half a dozen. When you got a drink, did they give you a straw? Patty and I, we went to one of my favorite restaurants, which is Olive Garden. We were sitting down and Patty ordered her water. I ordered my tea. He dutifully brought it there. He was a happy lad that came up and he dropped it down. And I noticed no straw. And I said, could I have a straw, please? He goes, you most certainly may. And he whipped that down right there, and he gave us the straws, and it was all wonderful. And so I asked him, I said, you can't offer us a straw anymore, right? He goes, no. And you guys know that in the infinite wisdom of the state of California, if a server gives a straw or offers a straw without them asking, they can serve jail time and be fined $1,000 because of a straw because it's made of plastic now that's the infinite wisdom now is that burdensome can you imagine being a waiter and forgetting that it's 2019 and in 2019 you're not supposed to give out straws and you give out straws to somebody who's going to your restaurant just to find out if somebody is getting straws and what happens to them thousand dollars that's it fine for you buddy is that burdensome that is so burdensome but on top of that, did you hear about the other line? I, I have to go back and double check this, but I'm pretty certain that if you were HIV positive and you sleep with someone, it's no longer a crime if you don't tell them. We, we are on this ship in the state of California that is run by fools. Okay, I'm done with that. Now, I'm going to go back to the scripture here. It just has to do with these yokes that we put on our necks. I mean, we are electing these people, and these are the things that they do for us. And if we follow Christ, our yoke is easy. But if we follow the ways of mankind, humankind, then it becomes burdensome. And in our country, we have the choice to determine, do we put this yoke on ourselves or do we not? And apparently, we're putting it on ourselves. And so that has to do with the yoke. So this is the setup for what else is to come here. So Jesus, his popularity is declining. His ministry, <coughs> excuse me, begins to take a little bit of a nosedive that ends up in his crucifixion. And so John the Baptist, he had doubt. In verse three, uh, he asked his disciples, Go and ask Jesus, are you the one who was to come or should we expect someone else? And, of course, he responded by saying, look at the works that are done. The works will bear witness to the fact that Jesus was the Messiah. And then Jesus talked about true greatness. And he was truly great, John the Baptist. He did, he was not double-minded. He stood for righteousness. He separated himself unto God, and he was humble. All of those things make somebody's great in God's kingdom. In the world, what makes you great? Your pedigree, where you've been educated, the amount of money you have, and how you use all three of those. that That's what makes you great. Doesn't matter if you're popular or not. But that makes you great. And the Lord says that the wisdom of the world is foolishness to him. And the wisdom of God is foolishness to the world. So we are at opposite ends of what greatness actually is. And Jesus talks about John the Baptist being great. He was the greatest prophet of the Old Testament times up until the time of Jesus. Although he's in the New Testament, he was still considered part of the old dispensation, part of the old economy, the way that things were done under the law. And that's why he was called the greatest. He was the forerunner to Jesus Christ. (coughs) Then it moves on, (coughs) excuse me, (coughs) it moves on to the second one, from doubt to disdain. These leaders were not happy with Jesus. In verse 16, to what can I compare this generation? And he is talking about the leaders. They are like children. Now, if you ever call an adult a child, oh, you little baby, is that something that's an encouraging word to them? No, it's an insult. It's another finger in your eye. Oh, you little whimpering baby. You know, and you, you, that's basically what he was saying. They are like children sitting in the marketplace, marketplaces and calling out to others. We played the flute for you and you did not dance. We sang a dirge and you did not mourn. Now, in our context of today, we wouldn't quite understand what this means, and I'll explain it. He goes on to say, verse 18, for John came neither eating or drinking, and they say, he has a demon. And the Son of Man came eating and drinking, and they say, he is a glutton and a drunkard, a friend of tax collectors and sinners. But wisdom is proved right by her actions. So he has this little vignette that's right here, like, what is going on? He's calling them little babies, is what he's saying to them. And the reason he's doing this is because they're throwing a fit. You know, it's, have you ever seen that uh, doormat that has two pictures of shoes, you know, the imprints of shoes on it? And it's a temper tantrum mat. And it gives instruction that you lift one foot, place it down, lift the other foot, and place it down like that. And you're supposed to go like this and throw your temper tantrum. That's what he's saying about them, that they're throwing this little temper tantrum. And the context he is using is something they would have understand in their day. In the marketplace, the little kids would be running around while the parents had their market going on. If you go to Jerusalem today, the old city of Jerusalem up on the inside, every one of the buildings that are there, (coughs) excuse me, and the... The width of the sidewalks that go through the old city, it's not very wide. It may be about 10 feet wide. And so it's real crowded and people are going through. And the parents, they they have these storerooms that are there. They're not very big. They could be... 12 feet across maybe by 20 feet deep or even less and they have everything in there that you could possibly want they have a shofar which is a ram's horn that you blow out and it makes sound they have the olive wood statues of moses and jesus and you can get a nativity scene they have all kinds of tapestries and everything that is there when you go to the old city of jerusalem well back then it was the same thing and the kids would all get together the kids of these parents who had these shops and they would run through the marketplace and they would play and they would all be together and everybody knew each other inside the marketplace and so when the kids would get together they would have these little flutes and they'd play these flutes and they would taunt each other just like little kids that's what they would do and there was always the alpha male that was leading the little pack of sometimes little brats sometimes little angels and they would go through the marketplace and when somebody would show up they would play their flute and maybe they'll get some coins for playing their flute. And if they play like a wedding song, we're to dance, you know. And, and if you walk by and you're an adult, you can go, hey, 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 hey. And you start jumping around and you throw them a coin and go, oh, thank you. It's wonderful. Or you play a dirge. A dirge is something that's played in a funeral possession. As they're walking along, you would play this dirge. That's what a dirge is. Well, the kids sometimes also in the marketplaces, if you go to Jerusalem, their funerals are a little bit different. When we were there, Patty and I, we were up on the, the marketplace here in the old city and this was uh, an Arab family and they were bringing somebody who had died and it's basically just a piece of plywood with raised inches, maybe about six inches. The body is on top of that and it's covered with a sheet or a flag or a blanket of some kind and there's six men that are carrying it and there's people in front and people in back and the kids would follow that and sometimes it play their little dirges on their flutes, you know, that type of thing. They're playing is what they're doing. And then sometimes they would do just the opposite. They would play like a wedding song behind the funeral procession. You get out of here, you little kid, you know, that type of thing where they're just being a nuisance. And so they would do the opposites or somebody would be getting married. They would play a dirge. You know, and and then that, that would be a problem. And so that's what the kids would do. And then when you don't respond, if you're in the marketplace and they play something and you don't drop them a coin, you don't play along with them, then they're, oh, fine, go ahead. And they start throwing this little tantrum. Jesus says, you guys are like those little kids that get upset in the marketplace because we don't play along because I'm not playing along You're throwing a temper tantrum, that little mat going back and forth. How dare you? Who do you think you are and where is your authority coming from? So there was this disdain that they started to develop for Jesus. So you got the context of what's going on here? Then he says, John the Baptist comes along and he came neither eating or drinking. Remember what he ate? What did he eat? Grasshopper. He ate grasshopper. And he put it in honey. He'd dip it in there. (laughs) little crunchy thing eating it if you go down to mexico you can eat some chupolinis chupolinis are spicy little grasshoppers you throw them into your salad you mix them up in there kind of like croutons go get a little leg out of there oh you clean your teeth you put it back in you know that type of thing that's what john the baptist was eating and he also had the camel's hair and a leather belt around him. He was a scruffy-looking character, that was a Nazarite. His hair was probably out to here, you know. And and they say, ah, you know, look at him. He is just worthless, is what they said about John the Baptist. But he neither neither ate nor drank, and said, well, he has a demon. So they criticize him. Basically, it's an ad hominem attack. Now in Philosophy, there's certain fallacies which are out there. Here's a fallacy. Well, most scientists will tell you that climate change is real. That's called the bandwagon fallacy. Just because there may be a lot of people or even a majority that say something is true doesn't make it true. That's called the bandwagon fallacy. You hear it all the time. There are other straw man fallacies. Well, if you look out into society, sometimes you see this, whatever, fill in the blank, going on, and you set up the straw man so you can knock it down to justify the behavior that you want to carry out. That's a straw man fallacy. Well, these fallacies exist, and when they're trying to make an argument against John the Baptist, they go to ad hominem. They couldn't win an argument with John the Baptist So they just say, ah, you have a demon. They criticized him personally. That's where the name calling comes in. If if somebody's losing an argument and they come to you and go, oh, you're just an imbecile. They didn't answer your argument. They are attacking you personally and trying to put you down. See, these are all fallacies. If you look them up on the Internet, fallacies and philosophy, That's what they are doing here. And then they turn to Jesus, and Jesus, he is eating and he is drinking with the sinners and the prostitutes. And because of that, they call him a drunkard and a glutton. They don't even respond to what he is doing, saying it's the sick that need a physician, not those who are well. They didn't respond to that. They just said, "Ah, you're a drunkard and a glutton. So you see how the leaders of the Jews at that time, they're digressing in their opinion of Jesus Christ, the Savior. They already had with John the Baptist. They wanted to discount them because they wouldn't dance when they played a song. They wouldn't weep when a dirge was played. And so you see what happens, and they start getting really frustrated after that point. Now it goes on. By the way, we, we have to look at that. And we have to apply it to ourselves. Each one of these sections in here, we can't just read it and go, well, that's a nice story. I appreciate the interpretation and the explanation that you gave. That's not what we're supposed to do with the scripture. We're supposed to read it. And if you appreciate it, wonderful. I'm so happy. But we're supposed to go a step farther with that. We're supposed to say, am I like the little child that plays a wedding song and somebody isn't dancing? Am I like the little child that plays a dirge and somebody doesn't mourn and play along? Am I looking at those who would minister or serve in any capacity inside the church and you don't like what they're doing, even though they may be serving with their full heart devoted to God, you just don't like it? And me too, I'm in this as well. Do we look at others and just saying, wow, they're such a hypocrite. We could easily do that, right? You look at somebody, who who in here is perfect? Anyone except for Patty? Anyone else in here? (laughs) Uh, Yeah, no one's perfect in here. And so we can always criticize somebody who's out there. And so we're supposed to look at that and say, the ministry of Jesus Christ, am I looking at that and getting upset and throwing this temper tantrum because it's not going my way. It's not being done according to my plan. Therefore, I'm taking my toys and I'm going home is what I'm doing. I'm leaving. I'm not talking to you anymore. You are officially deleted off my Facebook and my phone. I'm, not, I'm blocking your number. Is, is that what we do? And God would not have us do that. He would not have us be like these little children, like these leaders of the Jews. So we'll go on here. Now, we, you know what? Um, I need to move forward. The next one is disbelief. So we have doubt, we have disdain. You wouldn't dance for us when we played like a wedding song and you wouldn't mourn when we played dirge. That led to disdain. Then disdain led to disbelief in the eyes of these Jews who were there. In verse 20 it says, Then Jesus began to denounce the cities in which most of his miracles had been performed because they did not repent. Woe to you, Chorazin! Woe to you, Bethsaida! If the miracles that were performed in you had been performed in Tyre and Sidon, they would have repented long ago in sackcloth and ashes. So you see that the miracles that were performed, they said, no big deal. So what? And these were big miracles. You know, Jesus was raising people from the dead. He was healing them. He was restoring sight to those who are blind. He was opening up the ears of the deaf. When was the last time you saw somebody go into, like, children's hospital and raise up all the kids inside the beds at children's hospital? You don't see that. And the reason that was taking place was, again, if we reflect back on the other chapters, was to establish Jesus' word through the miracles. Jesus even encouraged them, look, if you don't want to listen to what I have to say, at least believe the miracles. Well, Chorazin, Capernaum, all these other cities, they simply refused to believe. And once you believe, that requires something of us. It requires us to repent. If we believe the words of Jesus, the miracles that he performed, then that leads us automatically to make a choice. Do we believe enough to where we want to repent and accept the word of God? Or do we reject it and just move on? These cities rejected it. Jesus was performing all these miracles. So many people were around him that he could not hardly move. Remember? The woman with the issue of blood reached out and touched the hem of Jesus' garment and she got healed. That's because she probably had to go underneath everybody on the ground, probably crawling on all fours to get through the legs to touch Jesus. That's how many people were around him. And all of a sudden he goes to these cities and they go, eh, nothing to see here. Let's go home. Well... With that, from Capernaum, Chorazin was about two and a half miles away. Tyre was about 34 miles away. Sidon was about 48 miles away. Jesus would walk all the way to these cities from his home base in Capernaum. And these miracles were performed so that the people might believe. Now, again, I, I want to establish and reiterate that once we get word of this, if we were back then, in that day and age once we got word of the miracles and it was established through witnesses it would be incumbent upon us to also believe and then repent we don't have the miracles going on today but what do we have that would cause the same thing to take place we have god's word if you look at god's word we have an account of the miracles we have four different people writing about the miracles matthew mark luke and john it has been established how many witnesses do you need to establish if something has taken place Two to three. We have four. We have four witnesses on top of the Apostle Paul who talks more about Jesus Christ and who he is. But these people rejected. (coughs) So when when this happens, (coughs) excuse me, you have to ask yourself, have you truly repented? Have you believed the word of God or have you not? Now, we all understand, if you've been here long enough, you all understand the consequences of not believing and repenting. The consequence is some will be raised to eternal life and some to eternal punishment. But these people would not. And because they would not believe, because they would not repent because of the miracles, Jesus goes on to say, but I tell you it will be more bearable for Tyre and Sidon on the day of judgment than for you. And who's he talking to? He's talking to the Jews. And you, Capernaum, will you be lifted up to the skies? No. You will go down to the depths, verse 23. If the miracles that were performed in you had been performed in Sodom, it would have remained to this day. But I tell you that it will be more bearable for Sodom on the day of judgment than for you. At that time, Jesus said, I praise you, Father, Lord of heaven and earth, because you have hidden these things from the wise and learned and revealed them to your children. Couple of things about this here. He pronounces on these cities, it's going to be worse for you than Sodom and Gomorrah. You think Sodom and Gomorrah is going to be judged? Huh. It's not going to be anything close to what's going to happen to these individuals because they refuse to believe. We have the complete Word of God. We have Old Testament, New Testament. When somebody gets the gospel and if they have a chance to look at it and they don't, it's going to be just like that for them. Just as Sodom and Gomorrah will be judged. The individual who rejects the gospel of Jesus Christ, they will be judged in the same fashion. The word of God is higher than everything which is out there. It's even higher than god's name he puts his word above his name that is in psalms i believe 138 it talks about that that his word is above everything and we have god's word probably all of us in here have more than one bible in our house maybe two maybe four maybe six and we have that word and if we reject what it says if we just want to do what we want take the wisdom of the world say i like that better it suits me better than god's word well expect to either receive no reward or not be in heaven at all. That's what God is saying here. There is a judgment to come for those who reject the miracles and the word of God that is there. And that's how we're supposed to apply that to ourselves. We have to say, am I doing that? Am I rejecting what God has for me? His word is very clear on a lot of subjects. And yet we say, no, I don't believe that. I was just talking to somebody last week, and I told the men's group about this. This individual believed that the reason children do bad things is that they're taught to do bad things. Not because they are evil little demons on the inside. A little child does not have to be taught how to lie. But this person I was talking to said, well, the reason that they lie is because there's consequences. I said to myself, no, if they lie, there's consequences. To the lying. And it was the wisdom of the world that was coming in and saying, little kids are innocent. They're born good. Really? When was the last time a little child came up to you and defied you? Like one of your children, if you have children. When was the last time you turned to your child or your grandchild and said, don't do it? And they looked at you. And they did exactly what you told them not to do that is because of a sinful heart. Nobody had to teach him that. They just do it all by themselves. And then they see what you're going to do. I, I know this little boy, the, the mom said, don't eat more of that candy. And so what did he do? Looked at the mom and went, just started stuffing it in there. Was like That is outright rebellion, is what that is. Where the authority comes along and says, don't, and you go, and you just go right ahead and you do that thing. See, that's, that's the wisdom of the word that says, no, it's because we're inherently evil. But if you take in the wisdom of the world and say, no, that's not the case. You see how the two get mixed? And so we, we want to make sure that we understand what God's will for us is, what his word says, that we have the knowledge and we have the wisdom to exercise that knowledge. Now, one other thing about this, Jesus says at this point, Thank you, Father, that you have revealed it to these who are children. You know, there's bookends here. Who are the Jews acting like? Children. And then he says here, children. We have this bookend that Jesus set up in his conversation, or Matthew, through the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. First, you have these children that are just. Rebellious over here, then you have these children who are receptive. On one hand, you have this tantrum throwing series of events and adults that are there, they don't like what's going on, and then you have those who, like children, accept God's word. And by the way, unless we become like little children, we can't get into the kingdom of God. We have to have that kind of faith. If you walked up to little children and said, Really? there are fish that walk on land and talk. The little child would go, really? And you'd say, yes, it's true. And they would go through their life going, oh, my daddy said there are fish that walk on land and talk. And somebody would say, no, there's not. Yes, there is. And it turns into an argument type of thing. But God wants us to believe in him like that little child. If Jesus came to us and said, I want you to believe that there are fish that walk around and talk if it were true it's not true but if it were true we should be able to say okay now for instance if jesus says i'm coming back and my reward is with me yeah where's the promise of his coming Uh uh-huh sure god's coming back does he want us to believe that like a little child yes he does is there a judgment to come does he want us to believe that by the way every knee shall bow and every tongue confess that jesus christ is lord of the glory of god the father that's those who believe and those who are condemned It is going to take place that way. So he wants us to be like the little children in the bookends, not like the rebellious little child which is out there. Now going on, verse 26, it says, Yes, Father, this was for your good pleasure. All things have been committed to me by my Father. No one knows the Son except the Father, and no one knows the Father except the Son, and those whom the Son chooses to reveal him. Come to me all you who are weary and burdened and I will give you rest take my yoke upon you and learn from me for I am gentle and humble in heart and you will find rest for your souls for my yoke is easy and my burden is light Now I have to something to say about this When we fall under the world and the way the world wants to dictate and rule over us by the way we are the only country that has set up throughout all of history a system to where we are declared to be free. We are not under the yoke of some king or monarch. We are not under a despotic, communistic, or socialistic type system, although we are heading there. And when you have that kind of system, it is very heavy. To give you an example of this, if you follow the news at all, for the past few years, there's this guy that is the head of Venezuela. What's happening in Venezuela? People are starving. uh, starving. People are dying and starving. They're eating the animals in the zoos over there. And those people who are really well-off and successful, they are close. I think his name is Maduro. They are close to that guy. And this is a socialist country. And he has taken the wealth of that country and he has squandered it and people are suffering under that. Throughout all history, whether it's been a monarch, or it's been socialism, or it's been communism, the ways of the world, people suffer under that. It is difficult. The way it was set up in the Old Testament, God was the king, and he made, even under the Old Testament, his yoke was easy. We look back on it and say, boy, I can't I can have lobster, I can't have shrimp. I can't eat camel if I want to. You know, all of these things, it's just burdensome. And then i got to pay 23 and a third percent tax. What is with that? i got to give to the temple. i got to give to the priests and some for the poor and the Levites. And oh, this is so difficult to live under. It's not difficult at all. Wouldn't you like to only have to pay over all the taxes that are there, property taxes, sales taxes, income taxes, all those taxes, wouldn't you just like to have to pay 23 and a third percent total? Do you know what you actually pay? it's probably like 50, 60, or 70% or more that you actually pay by the time you pay all these taxes. That's because God is not our leader. We've set up somebody to be a leader, and they have taxed us. And the more we bring these people in, the heavier the yoke they put on our necks, and it is more difficult. If the Jews would have had God as king, they only would have had to pay 23 and a third percent, and he required so little of them. Just bring a sacrifice. Yeah, just avoid these foods. It's for your health. The burden would have been easy. But what did they want? They wanted a king. King Saul. What did King Saul do? He levied taxes on him. He took the most handsome, the most beautiful girls that were out there. He married them, made them his own. He caused pain and a yoke to come upon the people. But the people said, we don't care. We don't want God. We want this king ruling over us. And even today, the meme which is out there is the government will take care of it. And when we have that mentality, it is a yoke. Now, if you have Jesus Christ as your headship, the one who is in charge, his yoke is easy. And his burden is light. What does it require you to give to the church? What's in your heart? If you give a little, you reap a little. If you give a lot, you reap a lot. Nobody is under compulsion in that at all. His yoke is easy. You were free to worship or you're free not to worship. What did Nebuchadnezzar say? If you don't bow down, I'm gonna throw you in the fire. You had to do it, or your life was in danger. Do we do you have to pay taxes with the government? Yes, you do. What happens if you don't? Bad, bad boy or girl, you go to jail for that. It is difficult. Now, in the millennial kingdom, when God is in charge, will we need to give something to the ministry of God? Well, probably maybe not because we are married to jesus christ but the people will they'll have to bring offerings but his yoke is going to be easy he's the one in charge these world governments are going to be under his authority it's going to be easy it's going to be light but people look at jesus christ and they say look at the burden he puts on you people no his burden is easy his yoke is easy and his burden is light that's why we want to fall under him now We have a dichotomy going on. We have Jesus Christ, the king of kings here. We are under his authority. And we have the world system here. And they want to put the yoke on us even more so, and they want to get rid of this competing yoke of Jesus Christ. Get him out of everything, and we are the ones who are supreme. That's the way the world system is working. This is what Jesus is pointing out here. To be under the yoke of somebody else is very burdensome, it's onerous, it is difficult. it causes us oh, it causes us so much pain. Now, I'm going to take just a little diversion here and explain even more in detail how this works. What is the most prosperous country in the world now? We are. We are the most prosperous country. Why? Because we followed this idea of freedom. God died, Jesus died to set us free. We have the Judeo-Christian ethic, which is in this country. It has caused us to prosper beyond all measure. All the other countries throughout all of history have suppressed their people, put them down, put them in chains, enslaved them. What kind of world systems are out there besides ours? Well, you have the socialism, the communism, the monarchies, which are out there. Then you have the world religions as well. Which do you think is an easier religion to fall under? The one of Christianity or the one of Islam? There is no question it is the one of Christianity. Which is easier to be under? The, the um, religion of Hinduism or the religion of Christianity? It is Christianity. Christianity. The things that are required in these other religions put huge burdens upon the people. Now, what if the people who are in charge are adherents to those religions? They put an additional yoke on the people. Burdensome, onerous, presses them down. And what happens to the people? They begin to degrade. They begin to feel the pain. They are affected physically, emotionally, psychologically, and spiritually. The people, if you go to some of the countries, if you go over like to Cambodia or Africa, sometimes you'll see the people there just as happy as can be. But you go to Uganda, the government owns everything over there. You're not allowed to excel and succeed. There are other countries like that. And they have, most of them, these other world religions. The ones that have the Christianity They usually have a corrupt government and they put that burden on them, which quashes or uh, squashes the Christianity. Now, I know I'm being a little philosophical here, but Jesus is trying to tell us about this yoke and how we're supposed to live and we're supposed to apply this teaching on how we communicate with everybody else out there. To, To expand on this a little more, do you guys know which country has the highest IQ? Could you guess which country that is? By the way, it's not the United States. It's Taiwan. Taiwan has an average IQ of 108. What is there about Taiwan that would set it apart? It is free capitalism, right? Now, again, I'm, I'm, not, I'm not saying, look, we need to be capitalists. That's not my point. I will get to my point in a second. But it's this idea, wow. Well, they are so free to conduct business, it has become a, a hub for wealth because of the freedom that is there. What about the countries that don't have so much freedom, like Equatorial Guinea? I don't know if you know where that is, but if you looked at a map and you saw Uganda and you went straight across to the West Coast, you would see Equatorial Guinea, which is there. The average IQ in, in uh, um, Taiwan is 108 the average IQ of a person in Equatorial Guinea is 58. And you say, well, what's the difference between those countries? It's 85% Muslim. And they suppress the people and their religion, and then the government is corrupt. There's other, by the way, our average IQ in the United States is 92. You know what the average IQ of little children is? Seven years old, 50. The average IQ of somebody who is 70 is about 90. So it gives you kind of an idea. So in these countries that are oppressed, that are suppressed, that have these burdens, that have these false religions, that have these corrupt governments, the burden is so heavy that the people cannot excel and they are put down in such a point they don't even have the know-how. When we go to Uganda, in Uganda it's generational poverty, they have no way to get out. And Jesus, now, did Jesus say, did you know what the IQ is of somebody in some far, that wasn't his point. His point was the burden of those religious leaders, if they are false, the burden of the world, if it is out there, it is so much greater than following under Jesus Christ and his headship. And on top of that, we get to live forever with no more pain, sorrow, suffering, death, any of that. I mean, it's so great. Why would not somebody want to go there? All the rest of humanity has this huge burden, and we are so blessed here. Now, I could develop this a little more, but uh, I'll probably hang out here. And and all these factors, those are the factors that come into these countries, you know. It's not exclusively those things, because like I said, there are some Christian countries that they call themselves Christian. They're mostly Christians in the country but the governments are corrupt, and it's, it's the same thing. It's difficult. So what's our responsibility in this? When we read in the gospel here of the decline of the ministry of Jesus Christ, the world with its yoke that it would like to place on us, and they're working feverishly to do that, and we are to go to the people and say, there is a gospel that brings freedom, and this world may get tough. It may get hard. It may be burnous, burdensome. It may be onerous, But we have this good news. In the future, it's going to be so blessed. It's going to be so good. There's going to be so much prosperity. There's going to be so much health. You know, in the millennial kingdom, somebody who is 100 years old will be thought a child if they die. It is just going to be so wonderful. That's our hope that we look forward to. So when we see what has taken place in the gospel and the decline, it is Satan the world and the flesh coming against the ministry of Jesus Christ. And he takes that burden on. he says, that's okay. I'm going to do the will of the father. So what about us? No matter how difficult it gets, you're going to follow Christ. And, And when I say that, the scripture says, follow him with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength. Imagine, and by the way, we have this. We should probably bring it out sometime and put this side. Got You guys against these guys. We have a tug-of-war rope. You get behind that rope. How, how much effort, if you're just playing tug-of-war, do you put into pulling that rope? Everything you have, you want to win, right? That's what we do. If you've ever done intramurals in college or high school and you have that tug-of-war, you're pulling on that thing. But a lot of times... When we follow Christ, we go, oh, you want me to grab the rope? Okay. And just hold on it. All right, pull you guys. You know, and you're standing there, come on, come on, you guys. We're all supposed to grab hold of the rope with both hands and say, I will follow Christ. I know what lies ahead. I reject the ways of the world. I will be an obedient soldier to Jesus Christ. One of his children, I will do that. But I'm grabbing hold of the prize, the high calling of God in Christ Jesus. For it is this reason he has called us. If you are in doubt, do you belong to God? Just ask him, God, please forgive me. Forgive me of my sins. Now what we're going to do at this point is those of us who have confessed Jesus Christ as our Lord and Savior, we're going to receive communion. If you haven't done that, well, as we're singing the song, ask him to save you. And it will be a blessed thing. He only came to give us life and give us life more abundantly. So if the worship team could come up, we're going to sing a song. And then we're going to pass out the bread and the cup. And as the song is being sung, we want to keep in mind the lengths to which Jesus went to to make sure we had the salvation. That we understand that his yoke is easy and his burden is light. And we, we do this in remembering his sacrifice and giving him thanks. So as we are singing this song, if you need to ask forgiveness of your sins, please do it with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength. If you need salvation, please ask him to save you. But in lieu of that, those, the rest of us that are here, as you get the cup and the bread, make sure you hold on to it so we can all receive it together, participate in receiving it together.